This is TSFPN.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network. You found the best podcast in the universe. It's Friday, October 7th, and you're listening to The Secrets. Welcome to this podcast of The Secrets, the podcast for anyone who is serious about writing. The Secrets home can be found at www.stormwolf.com. For the next 15 minutes, we'll talk about writing and how to get you even closer to seeing your name on the spine of a book. Welcome to the sixth special edition of The Secrets. I'm Michael A. Stackpole, a professional writer with 38 books to his credit, including eight New York Times best-selling novels. Those were all Star Wars novels. I make my living writing and make enough to keep me in beer, books, and bacon. Not necessarily in that order, and also enough to just pay for the termite treatment, which was yesterday, which is why this is a day late. When not working on assignments, I write and publish a how-to-write newsletter called The Secrets. This podcast is the audio adjunct to that newsletter. Sample issues and subscription information are available on my personal website, www.stormwolf.com. I'm currently running a special subscription deal connected with Hurricane Relief, so check it out. If you like these podcasts, you'll really love the newsletter, and you'll get a whole lot more material there. I also work with the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, tsfpn.com, where there are discussion forums for this show. You're all welcome to come over to the site and check out the discussions. You can participate in them, too, if you wish. If you don't, well, uh, I know it's because you're off writing and not because you're finding this boring. In Special Edition 5, which was last week, I discussed writing fast, and I made a comment that really needs expanding. Actually, it's a comment that I make fairly commonly. It's this. Writing is all about characters. Plot and language mean absolutely nothing if the characters aren't engaging. Heck, if the characters aren't riveting, the reader can just chuck your book aside with ease. There will always be someone who gets it right, and even if they're rare folks can always read that book again and again until a new one comes out. And trust me, they will. So you want your book to be that book. Because television is episodic, a lot of folks are content to be entertained by books where characters don't change and grow. Assuming this means you're not required to provide a story arc for a character in your story, however, is foolish. It's the equivalent of saying that just because folks eat hamburgers, they'll turn their nose up at a filet. People will live on adequate. They thrive on the superior. Since characters are where it all starts, this is really where you need to begin. And putting together a character story arc is the key. Putting one of those together might seem difficult, and it certainly is for one type of writer. Writers break down into two classes, plot-based writers and character-based writers. Plot-based writers tend to have really strong worlds and great plots, but the characters are not that deep and really don't change much. Character-based writers, on the other hand, have worlds that barely exist and plots that fall apart if you give them a sideways glance. What they do have are strong and interesting characters who suffer and grow through the course of the story. The difference in the marketplace is simple and is dramatic. Character-based writers have careers. Plot-based writers don't. In my case, I'm lucky. I have strong worlds, strong plots, and strong characters. I kind of deliver it all. As far as New York publishers are concerned, however, what kind of writer do you think that makes me? Exactly. As far as they're concerned, I'm a character-based writer. Editors maintain this is true even though my novels are heavily plotted and alternate viewpoints on a regular basis. 
or have paired chapters, where if I add one into one of the storylines, I have to add one into the other storyline. I'm definitely a plot-based writer, but because I do good characters too, I have a career. Well, at least so far. Character-based writers are folks like the late Roger Zelazny, a great science fiction and fantasy writer. Heck, Roger was a genius. When he wanted to write a story, he'd come up with a character. If he could have that character go through an action scene and then have another scene where that character was in dialogue with someone, he said he knew he had enough to write a novel about that character. Absolutely amazing. He would just start writing and let things go. He would just follow them where they wandered through various twists and turns. And he turned out some really stunning fiction doing exactly that. Me, I don't understand how he did it. I understand the explanation, but he might as well have been speaking Martian as far as I'm concerned. What follows will be a discussion of creating story arcs for plot-based writers. But you character-based writers can take heart. The same steps plot-based writers use to get a story arc together are the ones that you're going to use after the first draft of your novel. When you go through and reorder things, add scenes, delete scenes, and smooth out the character arc trajectory. For both type of writers, the following procedure is really good as a diagnostic when the book doesn't seem to be working. And believe me, I know that happens all the time. As I did when I discussed what should go into the perfect first chapter, I'm going to have to use an example for my character story arc. In those previous podcasts, I used my novel A Secret Atlas as an example. Since I know all of you have gone out and bought it, because of course having it will make these podcasts work so much better for you, I'm going to use it again. I'll follow the story of Tolo, the character you met in the first chapter, and you'll see how it develops. The most important point about Tolo and his development is that I totally screwed it up in the novel's first pass. I'd only ever intended that Moravin be a mentor character for Kiris Gijote. Great, I can't even pronounce my own character's names. I'd not figured out the story arc for him at the start, and this caused me all sorts of problems. Because Moravin was a point of view character, someone through whose eyes the story was told, he had to grow and change. If he didn't, readers would feel cheated. By the time I got to the end of the book, I had a fair idea who he was and who he had been and where he was heading. A couple of chapters were added to the manuscript in second draft, and other points were strengthened to link things up. This is important to note. Too many writers forget that they can fix things later. You don't have to get it right on the first pass. Do a good job of the repairs, and no reader will have any clue that there was ever anything wrong. The first thing you have to do in creating a story arc for a character is simple. You have to figure out where you want the character to end up. If you want to tell a story about a man who beats his wife but comes to his senses, repents, changes his behavior and lives happily ever after with her, the ending point is pretty clear. The beginning is suggested too, and the story arc is formed by points that connect one end with the other. If that were going to be a short story, you might start with him realizing he'd almost killed his wife and his being overwhelmed with guilt. If it's a novel, you start with him simmering in anger at her and let it build, watching things escalate until he gets to the point of his epiphany. With Moravin, what we really have is a search for self. Finding yourself stories are as common as bug dust, but folks enjoy them because, on one level or another, we're all involved in that sort of story ourselves. Step one is to establish who the character is, and this is exactly what we do in the first chapter. Here we learn a number of key things about Moravin. One, he's a master swordman. 
One who is so good that he's considered a mystic. This means he's magically better than other fighters. Two, he appears to be in his early 40s, but we learn he's considerably older than that by at least 80 years. Three, he has a relationship with his swordmaster, Foyun Jatan, and that his swordmaster is famous. Four, he's humble and gentle when dealing with a young boy, yet capable of fighting hard. Even so, being as good as he is, he doesn't kill unless forced to. Five, perhaps most importantly, we learned that 81 years previously, he wasn't so quick to be merciful, so he's mellowed over the years. This first chapter pretty much sets him up, but even though it's shot from his point of view, it doesn't speak very much to the conflicts going on inside of him. It's an establishment chapter for him and for the world. Just as you don't launch into a litany of things you discussed with your therapist when you first meet someone, it wasn't necessary to plunge into introspection in this first chapter. For most readers, the chapter establishes Moravin as someone who's cool and interesting. The last line of the chapter sets the hook we've baited previously and we'll get them to read on. Chapter three is where we'll set the hook more deeply and begin to toss in complications that will carry throughout the story. We start with Moravin being nervous, which is at odds with what we've seen before. He greets his old master and the two of them spar verbally. So while he respects the man, they do have an ease to their relationship, which establishes them both as likable. A third of the way into the chapter, we get three paragraphs of backstory on Moravin that complicates his life. We learn that he knows nothing of his early life. He was grievously wounded, and his memory is blank concerning the time before that. His great skill with the sword did manifest itself, and he learned enough to become a mystic with a blade. His wound suggested that he'd been struck from behind, so Moravin thought he might have been attacked while running away. To combat the idea that he might have been a coward, he became ruthless in combat. For this reason, the bandits had died 81 years earlier. As I've noted in The Secrets, one of the rules of writing is that all scenes should do more than one thing. Chapter 3 characterizes Moravin, but it also provides a lot of history for the world. This history lesson blends into a mission for Moravin. He's to travel to the wastes and seek out those who are plundering graves and recovering relics that have been steeped in wild magic. Those relics would make an army powerful, so trade in them must be stopped. While Moravin agrees, the idea of traveling there fills him with dread. His being afraid of something is not quite what we would expect, and the reason for his dread is not addressed here, so the reader gets to gnaw on it for a little while. Chapter 3 was not in the original manuscript. I had to add it to provide the backstory. Without it, I didn't have a good starting point for Moravin to change from. Between these two chapters, we have the public and private faces of Moravin, and because he's somewhat less than perfect in the latter chapter, he becomes more accessible for readers. They can respect him before this, but here they get a chance to like him. Chapter 6 was originally the second chapter in which Moravin appeared. As I noted before, I'd originally only intended him as a mentor character for Kiras, and this is the place where they meet. Foyun Jatan, Moravin's master, gives him an apprentice. In many ways, this is an establishment chapter for Kiras, but it also characterizes Moravin. He's willing to take on added responsibilities, which is rare among characters after all. Chapter 11 is another chapter of Moravin's interaction with Kiris. It's a lot of character work for both of them, making them a bit more complex. It speaks to conditions in the world and shows that Moravin is equipped to be Kiris's mentor. Neither chapters 6 nor 11 changed substantially from the previous draft, since they were largely about Kiris. 
His relationship with Moravan is pretty much continued as originally written, so they didn't require much work to bring them in line with the new story arc. Chapter 11 does end interestingly, however. A messenger from Prince Curran arrives and tells Moravan that a demonstration of his skill with a sword has been given to the prince as a gift. Moravan is cautious, but asks who gave his skills as a gift. He's told it's the Lady of Jet and Jade, at which point he acquiesces by saying, her request is my command. That's how the chapter ends, and it pretty much guarantees the reader will continue on. Why? The Lady of Jet and Jade has been established as Nalanir's top courtesan, which screams sex, and all readers will read on at the hint of sex. The fact that she knows him well enough to offer his services and his willingness to agree means that they have something going on. Readers will wonder what, and the second you get them imagining something, they're invested in the book and the characters. Chapter 15 is from Narati Antarazi's point of view, but it's an important chapter for Moravan. It involves a healing ritual offered by the last of the Vanyash, the magicians who helped destroy the world. People come to be healed of infirmities real and imagined. Dunos, the crippled boy from the first chapter, shows up, and here we get to see Moravan's physical wound. What's critical here is what is unseen. The magic is certainly in play, but there are no visible clues as to any healing. Moravan still has his scar. Dunos's arm is still crippled. Narati doesn't really feel that different. Still, Moravan notes to Dunos, the magic only promised to heal us, not to give us what we want. It gave us what we need. As we continue with the Narati storyline, we see the effects of her healing. We have to wonder then, What's been healed in Moravan? We know he has amnesia. Is that why he came to the healing? Is that what he gets cured? We don't know, and we have to wonder, so we keep reading. Chapters 19 and 20 involve the gift of his skill being displayed. 19 is shot from Prince Kieran's point of view. Important here is that Prince Kieran recognizes Moravan, but not his name. The prince wonders why he's traveling under a new name. He also notes that while he would have summoned Moravan, one can never be sure the Shidanzu will comply with orders. This all implies a history between the two characters, which deepens the sense of the world. Okay, so now I'm going to let you in on a little secret. Please, it's just between us. Do not tell anybody else. I don't have a clue what Moravan did for the prince under another name. The fact is, I really don't have to have a clue, and if I never answer that question, it really won't matter. What's important is that it suggests a whole bunch, and that makes the world seem bigger. It makes it very possible that at some point later, I could pick that thread up and tie it back into something else, which does make for a much tighter book. In a short story, tying up a loose end like that is absolutely mandatory, but in a novel, you can let it hang. Worst comes to worst, you do a short story to cover it, and folks will, you know, look at it and go, great, I want to read the novel, I want to see more about these characters. The bulk of chapter 19 is a sword fight between a Turisin barbarian and the ancient enemy of the Empire and Moravan. It's a great fight and perfect for adding some action to what has been a fairly staid thing up to this point. Action is always useful picking up the pace of a story, and here it reinforces just how good Moravan is. Chapter 20, which is shot from Moravan's point of view, adds to the previous chapter. It turns out that the sword the barbarian was using is from the waist. This confirms Foyin Jatan's worst fears and makes it far more imperative that Moravan head into the Waste. The explanation of all this also provides more background to the world. Most important of all, however, 
Raven and the Lady of Jet and Jade speak with each other, and we get more history and the two of them go off to share a night of passion. As noted earlier, sex always attracts reader attention. Having some sort of a romance element in a book is really important, and this is where the Se a Secret Atlas is really deficient. There's really no single straight-line romance in the whole book. While a lot of groundwork is laid, um, no pun intended, for romantic developments, the relationships in the book are either still in the offing or dysfunctional. Having to approach things that way is a limitation of writing series fiction. You really can't have everything happen at once. Sometimes that means things do not happen as quickly as you'd like. Moravin shows up briefly in Chapter 23. He listens in on a conversation between Prince Kieran and Kelly's entourage at the Prince's invitation. The Prince asks him to safeguard Kelly's in the Waste. There's a discussion in vague terms of whatever went on between Moravin and the House of Komir, the ruling house of, of Nalanir. Purposely vague, of course. As I said before, I've got no idea what it was. Moravin agrees to do what the Prince asks. This sets up the joining of the Kelly's and Moravin storylines later in the book. The next time we see Moravin is in Chapter 29, which is a Kelly's on Tarazi chapter. Moravin and Kyrus rescue Kelly's and his companion from a group of men, and Moravin takes the villains apart with relative ease. Again, we have action here to pump things up and to set up how Kelly's sees Moravin. From this point through the end of the book, Moravin and Kelly's chapters will alternate through the expedition to the Wastes. We'll get to see things through Moravin's eyes, and we'll get to see Moravin through the eyes of Kelly's on Tarazi. This gives us a nice contrast since Kelly's sees Moravin as a leader and defers to him, whereas Moravin has none of the ego that being a leader might suggest. In chapter 32, Borisan Grist is added to the mixed. It's another character. He's an important individual, and Prince Kieran has asked Moravin to seek him out and protect him. Moravin uses his head instead of his sword to defuse an explosive situation. And then in chapter 35, the whole group goes off to destroy a monster because this is a pledge Moravin has made as part of the solution to the previous problem. These two chapters are largely untouched from the original draft, show the group of characters coming together, provide some action, and gives us a sense of just how weird things are out in the wastes. Chapter 41 underwent changes to shape the trajectory of Moravin's story arc. The first part contains a lot of introspection for Moravin. He acknowledges that something about the waste has him uneasy. He also meditates on his past and how he's moved away from violence, if given a choice. This has been a series of conscious decisions on his part, but also suggests, of course, that at one time he was a lot more hair-trigger about these sorts of things. In chapter 49, Moravin's sense of unease is growing stronger. The second and third paragraphs were never in the original manuscript and herald this growing sense of difficulty. In the second paragraph, Moravin sees images of himself he can't figure out. The reader can't figure them out either, and trying to reconcile them with what they know is truly impossible. One of the images presented there is significant. The others are largely there for color, much as was the discussion of Moravin's service to Prince Curran. The third paragraph Moravin uses to think about how he's felt different since the time of the healing and how that sensation is becoming stronger. Chapter 56 is the last one in which Moravin will appear in any active sense and it's shot from his point of view. It opens with him being very afraid of being out in the wastes and unable to remember when he's been this afraid before. Moreover, he connects the fear with something on the other side of his amnesia. 
Lastly, he admits he's powerless to fight it. He and the others get trapped in a storm of wild magic. A ball of that wild magic strikes him, exploding and tossing him deeper into the cave where everyone has taken shelter. More important than any bodily injury, however, is something that enters his mind with the magic. He hears a voice and it says, it's you. You have returned. Good. You won't get away again. Moravin's world fades to black at that point, and readers are left wondering, who is he? What was that voice? From what did he escape? And why is the voice vowing he won't get away again? Those questions are overlaid on a backdrop of the waste history. Could this be something to do with the cataclysm? And if it is, well, that would make Moravin Tolo much, much older than he had previously appeared to be. His master had been alive, but had not gone on the expedition, and Foyun Jatan was positively ancient now. Why isn't Moravin that old? Why isn't he a monster like the surviving Banyesh was? All of these things are very useful in bringing readers back to the next book to pick up on where things left off. In the beginning of this podcast, I noted that characters have to change, and by the end of this segment of the story, the sense of Moravin we get is that he's been running for, from something out of his past. We know his past is linked with the wastes, and we can presume that it ties into the cataclysm, but we're not sure how or why. But in this first section of Moravin's search for himself, what we do learn is that he isn't who he thought he was. We don't know who he actually is, but the idea that the persona of Moravin Tolo is as much a mask as the name is has been firmly established. Since this is the first book in a trilogy, we can also accurately expect that the next two books will allow him to figure out who he is or, or was, and then allow him to reconcile his past with his present and either integrate the people he's been or reject one part of himself or another. So while we've gone through the whole story arc for the first book, you have to know it's just one third of the story arc the character will go through during the series. And yes, having this story arc figured out made plotting and writing the second book a lot easier. Actually, I'm lying. Plotting his part was a real pain, but it did make the writing much easier. Okay, to recap, to do a story arc, find an end point, which is the desired result of all the character will go through. Pick a starting point. Work out the series of steps that will result in the person at the start becoming the person at the end, and you've got your character arc. Sometimes it'll be short, and matters that will be dealt with will be trivial. It's easy, for example, to take a minor character from being afraid of dogs to no longer being afraid of dogs. One other point which is very important, and certainly was true for Moravin, sometimes, as you're writing, the character develops in a way that takes you away from your projected endpoint. That's fine, and usually very good. It makes for a better story because the growth is organic and is built out of the novel. This clearly is what happened here with Moravin, and really does make for a stronger novel. So don't be afraid when your characters take over, just don't let them run away with things. Unless, of course, you're a character-based writer, in which case you should just hang on tight until you pen the end. This is Michael A. Stackpole for The Secrets. My website is www.stormwolf.com. There you can learn more about The Secrets newsletter, read some sample issues, and subscribe. At tsfpn.com, the Sci-Fi Podcast Network, we have discussion boards for this show and all the other shows that are part of our network. Please come on over, register, and discuss this show or any other, or ask questions and make suggestions for future discussions.
This podcast is copyright 2005 by Michael A. Stackpole. I'll be back in a week or so. Until then, good luck with your writing.